you have your bulletin, please open it up, and I'll read our passage of Scripture this morning from the translation provided. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, series we've called True Religion. The sermon is called The Fruit of Faith. The text, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Once again, this is God's Word. What profit is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister in the church is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you in the church says to them, go in peace and be warmed and fully satisfied without giving them the things needed for the physical body. What profit is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do honorably. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was already active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was already counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the visible body, apart from the invisible spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. Fruit, in this particular section of James is presented to us really through four illustrations. And what we see in these illustrations is the idea of fruit in both a negative and a positive light, and then as it relates to God and as it relates to man. Fruit in a negative way and a positive way, and as it relates to God and as it relates to man. Now, that's how the text breaks down. That's, that's how we would divide up the original text and how the author would have communicated that and how the recipients would have understood it. And the big ideas there, the four of them, are selfishness, fear, friendship, and sacrifice. The first two address the relationship towards God. The second two address the relationship towards others. Now, why is this important? Why is the book of James so important, and why is this section so important, and and why is it so difficult for some people to understand and to fit into the rest of their theology of redemption? 
Why is it challenging for those of us who embrace the sweetness of Reformed theology, the sweetness of grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, the sweetness of understanding our total depravity, of understanding the unconditional election of God before the foundation of the world apart from anything that we did or anything He knew we would do, about the particular atonement of Christ, about the truth that when He sets His heart upon us to draw us in, that nobody in their own autonomous free will can resist Him, and that once secured, there is no one who can take them out of His hand. Those of us who love those doctrines and find them so foundational and anchoring to our soul, why do we struggle with a chapter like this? The answer is because it says things like you're saved by works. And that you're not saved by faith alone. And all of a sudden, for some who are less anchored in these realities, they are threatened by such teachings. Begin to wonder if the Bible really does contradict itself. How can these things be true? Well, I trust that today will be a day where that helps you, and I'll be able to, by God's grace, be somewhat useful to him for this body in that regard. I think to begin with, we need to back up a little bit and just ask ourselves, what does the Lord Jesus himself say? Well, our Lord taught that every good tree bears good fruit and that a bad tree produces bad fruit. That's a simple reality, and the same is the case with faith. There is a faith that produces bad fruit and a faith that produces good fruit. There is a faith that saves, and there is a fake faith that does not. Genuine faith always produces works. It always produces the good deeds, and this is the case for any true Christian. And James then uses these illustrations to explain the difference between the faith that is alive and the faith that is dead. The world has no idea about the difference between fruit and philanthropy, or between faith and religion. I just got back from a place where there were lots of people doing good deeds, and there were a lot of religions who were trying to elevate people from their circumstances and provide them with moral instruction. And there were a lot of people running around dressed up in their shirt and tie and trying to tell everybody to quit the things that were causing them harm and overcome their vices and clean up their lives and live more moral lives and try to do good deeds for one another and minister to them in their destitution. And all of those things seem to be externally good, but they're based on something that is not going to do anything for their eternal soul. They are all works, but they are dead works. The only works that are genuine works, that are genuine fruit, are the ones that come from a genuine faith. When somebody says faith-based in our culture today, they almost always mean mainline religious. Sometimes people want to get me on board with something, and they say, oh, you would be encouraged, pastor, because this is faith-based. Well, I try to be kind, and I try to be gracious, and I 
Hopefully I'm in a good enough mood and I'm not living in the flesh at the moment. But part of me wants to say, I couldn't care less if it's faith-based. Frankly, faith-based is sometimes worse than non-faith-based because at least the non-faith-based people know they're just trying to do good things for the sake of humanity. The faith-based people are trying to convert you to a religion that makes you twice the son of hell you were before. I don't want to have a faith-based thing unless it's gospel-centered and the true gospel and the right gospel. So when we talk about faith in our culture, we have to explain what that means. And James here is drawing a very definitive line between genuine conversion and a false religion called cultural Christianity. One of the most damaging religious organizations in our nation right now is cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity. Moralism. Christian nationalism, all the other derivatives from true gospel. And what James is doing is he is drawing this line, and he is making it very clear that works are not something that contradict faith alone and Christ alone. Works are a way of actually identifying the faith alone that is in Christ alone. In fact, where this book fits within our understanding of of all of redemptive history, where this fits in in biblical theology in terms of the grand story of redemption, it is that it it helps us understand more clearly what faith actually is. We see in this chapter, as it relates to other texts in the New Testament, that faith is a gift. Ephesians 2.8 says that faith is a gift from God. He gives you the faith that you then exercise. It is a mark. Galatians 3.26 says we are all now sons of God, firstborn sons of God, eligible to receive what all of those in that unique position would have held. That it is a fight. 1 Timothy 6.12 says to fight the fight of faith. And then it is also the root, Titus 3.8. It is that which we are to be devoted to, devoted to the good works. How do you do that? It's rooted in your faith. And those good works are what are produced, not simply done on the side and then added to the tree, but produced by the tree. It is a gift. It is a mark. It is a fight. It is a root. So understanding faith is part of understanding redemptive history. And the reason is that when you understand it, you will be able to grow more in your assurance because you will one day stand before the judgment seat of God. And we know that it is only those who by faith alone in Christ will be able to stand there blameless with great joy. And so, this is the fruit of faith in God which lays down your life for another. And the greatest example of faith in God which lays down your life for another is explicitly seen on the cross when our Lord said, it is finished. And there, as we saw last week, mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, the author then wants us to understand how this faith works out, and so he gives us these illustrations And so the first one we see in verses 14 down through 17 is this, selfishness towards others. He's going to start with the negative, so let's look at that together. 
He says, what profit is it, my brothers? And that word profit is important. Uh, Sometimes we just say good, but the word good there, it means profit. It means that you've gone into a a business deal with the understanding that you're going to invest some of your capital with the hopes that that will have a return. It will be a profitable trade, a profitable transaction. You want to buy something low and sell it high. And this profit is the difference. And he says, what profit, what's the good, what comes out of this? What's left over if someone claims that he has faith but does not have works? That word works there is a very generic word for works. It was used for the works of God. It was used for miracles. It was used for good and evil deeds as well. It was used even for just things. What are the, what are the things that you've got as a result of your faith? And the word itself is always defined, as we know, by the context. And so here, the things are the good deeds that go along with your claim to have faith. The question is, can that faith save him? Now, this is a very provocative question. You have to understand that this letter that you have in your copy of God's Word, this letter that you're holding in front of you, I trust you have your your Bible or look at the bulletin, this written copy is a letter. Maybe even it was a sermon originally. And when you came across that verse, it would have made you sit straight up in the seat and say, what is James saying? Can that faith save him? Is he calling into a question faith here? Is he calling into question my understanding of it? Is he he introducing something new? Is he saying here that there is no such thing as faith alone? It's a provocative question. He says, if someone claims they have faith, but there's absolutely no evidence of it whatsoever, can that save him? Obviously, the implied answer is no. And verse 15 goes on, if a brother or sister, further developing this illustration, if a brother or sister, and we're thinking here specifically within the church, because that's where this situation would most often be encountered, He's not limiting it to the church, but it's most often within the church. And he's applying it both to males and to females, brothers and sisters in this congregation. He says, if you come across someone like this, one of these widows, one of these orphans, one of these people, anyone, and they are poorly clothed and they are lacking in daily food, then you need to do something about it. You might say, how is it possible for someone to be lacking in daily food? Well, the reality is, in this context, and it's still this way in many other places around the world, uh, the people who labored, labored during the day, and they were paid at the end of the day, and they used that money to buy the food they needed for that day. Jesus gives an illustration of this in a parable he tells in Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16 parable of the day laborers. And as we know from other parts in the book of James, there were all sorts of people in the synagogue there that James is writing to, and some of them were wealthy and some of them were poor. We'll read later on in James chapter 5 verse 4 that some of the rich people there, likely Christian rich people, were guilty of even abusing some of these poor people and withholding from them their daily pay so they could have their daily needs met. But what he says in verse 16 is very clear. It's inescapable. And one of you in the church says to them, go 
literally, go on your way, don't bother me, go in peace. That's not a blessing. That's not like a benediction. They're saying, go in peace. Just go. You'll be fine. Be warm, be filled, literally be fully satisfied. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what profit is that? Back up to verse 1 or verse 14, that's the word, profit. What profit is it? He goes back now and describes in more detail. Verse 16, that's the profit he's talking about. What's left over there? What can you show for it? What does your faith reveal? He says, if you know that somebody has a need and you basically just dismiss them with nothing more than a, hey, just go and trust God, he'll provide for you. When you yourself are the one who either owes it to them or could even provide it for them, what profit, what use, what good is your faith? Verse 17, so also keeps the illustration in view. It's almost like a a declaration. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is a declaration that is made. Faith itself is useless if there is not some sort of fruit. It is without profit. And each of these illustrations the selfishness towards others, the fear of God, the friendship with God, the sacrifice for others. Each of these four illustrations is going to end with a summary statement, and he gives it to you there. Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. It's a very negative approach. Dead faith. Dead faith, as it results to other people, is demonstrated in selfishness. James would say to the gathered assembly, and I believe I can say on the authority of Scripture to you gathered here today, that if you claim to have faith, but you have a cold, closed heart towards the needs of the people around you, then you need to question the reality of the faith. But he moves on now, not just to talk about people, but he moves on to the relationship that one has even towards God, and it's a rather dramatic one. Because he understands that he'll be able to explain this better if he takes it really to an extreme, and he does, doesn't he? Look at verse 18 through 20. This is our second point, the fear of God, second illustration. Now, you might be thinking fear of God sounds like a good thing, and normally it is, but not here. Verse 18 begins, but, and that's a very strong contrast in terms of the original, that particular word, that conjunction. It's often translated this way with the English word but, but to a Greek reader, they would see this and it would stand out there. It would be almost like it were highlighted, like it were in bold and italics and all caps. The greatest possible contrast here. But someone will say, and this someone here is someone saying to someone else. He is sort of forecasting what might go on in the congregation This isn't someone coming back at James with this question. It's not a confrontation. He just says, I know how this is going to work, and there's going to be some debate among you. James understood what it was like to to preach to churches. James knew that sometimes when you preach something, in the back of your mind, you're thinking to yourself, now I know this is going to raise some questions. I've been there many times. I've said something, kind of lobbed it out there. I thought to myself as I'm watching it drift off from the pulpit, 
thinking to myself, I wonder how that's going to land. I wonder what kind of email I'm going to get this week. I wonder who's not going to be here next week. I wonder who's going to, you know, call me up and say, uh, got a concern about something. I think you might have accidentally said something last week. James understands that there's going to be this confrontation as a result of what he just said. And some of you are going to say, perhaps to somebody else within the congregation, this is in quotations here, you have faith and I have works. There's going to be teams, the faith team and the works team. The works team is going to say, well, we just do good works. We really care about the community. We love people. We're serious. We're out there doing stuff. We love the imperatives in the Bible. We need more programs. We need more outreaches. We need more stuff going on in the community. And then you're going to have the the faith people who are saying, we just need to have faith that God will reach all those people. I know he's going to save the ones he's going to save. We are good, faithful Calvinists. God will save the ones he's going to save. I just trust him. I don't need to do anything. I'll just wait here. What do we do about these two people? The faith people, the works people, the teams that seem to be showing up. He says this, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. That's perhaps one of the most important statements in the entire text. And we have to ask ourselves a question, how is it that he can show these works as a way of demonstrating this faith. Let's be clear with what he's saying. He says, show me your faith apart from your works. Implied in that is it's not possible to show your faith apart from your works. In principle, what he is saying is that if you really have faith, you will produce something. You don't have to be an arborist to identify an apple tree versus an orange tree. All you need to do is look at the fruit. Likewise, you don't need to tell an apple tree to produce apples. That's what apple trees do. And one of the things that I love about studying the life of Martin Luther and even the challenges he had with this letter because it was so fixated on on works and he had a very difficult time processing that is that he never taught anything that would contradict with what is in the book of James. In fact, in his writings, he came to really understand what James was saying and came to terms with the book and he said this, and it's such a helpful quote, I'm going to give it to you. Quote, a man would have to be an idiot to write a book of laws for an apple tree telling it to bear apples and not thorns seeing that the apple tree will do it naturally and far better than any laws or teaching can prescribe, end quote. And just like a man would be an idiot to write a book telling apple trees to bear apples, a minister of the gospel would be an idiot to create a book of laws to try to conform Christians to some external moral standard when the reality is that if they are genuinely converted and spirit-filled, they will bear fruit. The question is not, how do I tell people what fruit to bear? The question is, how do I encourage those who are already believers, to bear that fruit 
by the power of the Holy Spirit in absolute assurance that He will do His work through them for the glory of God. You see, the modern Christian church is filled with people who are looking for someone who will simply tell them what to do and what fruit to bear. They're actually drawn to, attracted to, people who are engaged in the idiotic scheme of trying to moralize people. And sometimes they will do this terrible thing of taking God's Word and then creating some sort of moral structure that they will then impose upon people. And even if they have very good intentions, they have very bad outcomes. And at worst, they are actually working at cross-purposes with the gospel. At worst, they become the religious false teachers, the very people whom Jesus Christ Himself spared His most vicious condemnation for. How many sermons have you heard where some pastor stands up and reads the story of the woman who gave her last two coins to the temple And she's held up as some model of sacrifice, some model of giving. And you hear some impassioned plea to go out there and be sacrificial like that widow who gave up her last two coins, when in reality, Jesus was giving her as an example of the absolutely abhorrent and disgusting abuse of the poor that had been rife among the religious leaders in Israel in those days. That woman is not a picture of sacrificial giving. That woman is a picture of what it is to be a victim of spiritual abuse. You see, when we talk about good works, we're not talking about good works that are extracted from you by some sort of religious system. We're talking about the joyful good deeds that flow out of your heart as a result of spiritual rebirth. Brothers and sisters, you're intelligent people. And one of the reasons why I'm so comfortable taking texts and trying to really explain them to you in their context and challenge you, even if maybe you've heard them taught to you differently, is because I trust that you are careful students of God's Word and that you go back to the Scriptures and that you derive from the Scriptures alone everything you need for understanding life and godliness. I I respect you, and I would never want to come here and give you some glib repetition of what we so often hear out there in Christian circles and allow you to think that somehow that's true just because you've always heard it taught that way. We have to do the due diligence to understand what these Scriptures really teach because honestly, brothers and sisters, eternal life and death are at stake. This nation and this world is filled with people who think that they are Christians and think that they're born again and think that they're going to stand before the judgment seat of God one day and be welcomed into His glory and will be among those who are utterly shocked when they come to the realization that they really don't belong to Him. They will stand before Him with a claim, and that claim will have no more bearing on their eternal destiny 
than the very same claim made by the demons who are in hell. That's the point. Do you understand how important this is? This is real. And James isn't messing around. If anybody knew what it was like to have a wrong view of Jesus, it's James who grew up with him and didn't understand who he was until after he had died, risen again, and ascended. James pulls out all the stops, and in this second illustration, goes on to say that you believe that God is one, you do well. You are honorable, as we've translated that elsewhere. Chapter 2, verse 8. You're honorable, you do well. Just like the one who tries to love his neighbor as himself. The other half of the law of God summarized. You do well, you say God is one. And right before they think, well then I guess things aren't as bad as I imagined. He goes on with this conclusion. Even the demons believe. Make a note of it. The word believe there means believe. It's the same word used to describe genuine belief in the New Testament. It's the same word used to describe believers. Even the demons have that knowledge. Even the demons believe it and shudder. That's the fear of God, folks. That's the fear of God who who understands God for who He is and then understands there is no hope for redemption. And, And my biggest concern as I proclaim this to you this morning is that there might be some of you sitting here today and you have heard this so many times that you're just sitting there, maybe you're dozing, maybe you're not paying attention, maybe this is just the same old Sunday for you, you don't really care, you don't, you know, you're not engaged. And I could very well be speaking to people gathered here today that are literally in the exact same position before God as these demons thinking somehow you've got some understanding of the gospel that'll be sufficient only one day to realize with utter shaking, shuddering, incomprehensible fear and regret that it has never actually transformed you. So, as the old Puritan said, you preach sermons like a dying man to dying men. You're all dying men and women. It's a reality. And God forbid that we just flippantly cruise through life and our so-called Christian life with no real concern for the eternal realities that are at stake. That's why he is so blunt with his conclusion in verse 20. This is almost sarcastic. He says, there you go. You want to you see, see what faith looks like without works? You want to see what, what fake faith leads to? You, you, you want to see what this pretend Christianity leads to? Here it is. It's demons shaking in the knowledge that one day they'll be thrown into the lake of fire along with hell and the Antichrist and the false prophet and the devil. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? There you go. I just showed it to you, James says. Look at the third illustration, friendship with God. He says this in Verse 21, now let's get into the good news, shall we? 
That was pretty heavy, wasn't it? Yeah, now we can all decompress a little bit. Take a deep breath. I'm not like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, but you know, there's some bad news first. But that's past. Now let's talk about the good news. Look what he says in verse 21. This is our third point, friendship with God. It's the opposite of fear. Now he's starting with God and he'll go to men. He says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That's a little challenging. So wait a minute. Does that mean that's when he got converted? It's kind of like, you know, you, you sort of get saved, but you're not really saved until you prove it later. You, know, you sort of get saved, but you're not really saved until you throw your stick in the fire at camp, until you rededicate your life, until you have the second blessing. Is that what we're talking about here? No, not even close. He says, listen, our father Abraham was justified by works when he did this with his son. What does it mean? Verse 22, you see, and I want you to underline that, you see. He's going to use that again later in verse 24. You see? I want you to see it. Look down. There it is. Faith was active. It was already active. In the original language, this is a Greek Verb that means it had already happened to him. He already was justified. It's the same word that is used in Romans 8.28 for all things already working together for good for those who love God. It's an already working kind of active faith. And all of this was going on along with his works. And faith was then completed. The same Greek verb terms of its construction, had already been being worked on, was already working, and is now made visible. Now, it's very important to understand this, the context. This is going back to Genesis 22, verses 5 and 12. Those are two verses I would like to look at. Genesis 22, 5 and 12. You don't have to turn there. I've given the small group leaders some detailed explanation for this, so when you're in home fellowships, you can discuss it more at length. But he says in Genesis 22.5, it's very important. This is when Abraham leaves the servants behind to go and sacrifice Isaac. The Hebrew uses the first person plural, and it literally would say this, if I were to translate it literally. He says to the servants, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy, we will go over there, and we will worship, and we will come again to you. One of the things I love to do is go back and look at the translations that get some of these things right in an effort to communicate the truth of the text. And I found one, the Coverdale Bible, one of the original English translations back in 1535, expresses it this way. What that does is it's faithful to the grammar. You see, Abraham is making a declaration of faith. We will go. We will worship. We will return. Somehow... Between now and when we get back, I am going to obey God, sacrifice my son, kill him, burn him up on the, on, on the altar, and then we'll be coming back together. And between when he left the donkey with the servants and when he came back, God is the one who did that miraculous work of demonstrating the reality of his faith through his works. And he did that for us. Genesis 22 verse 12 
He uses a phrase that quotes God who says, Now I know that you fear God. This is the proper kind of fear of God. It's the fear of God that makes the faith of Abraham visible to the reader, to the one who's hearing about this story from Genesis. God already knew that Abraham was faithful. God didn't need to test Abraham so that God could learn something. God doesn't learn. Why did God do that? He did it so that we would learn, so that we would read that narrative and see it. God knew it, but he ordained the event, he ordained the narrative to prove the faith that Abraham had was already working simultaneously with his works, working together to reach the completed end stage of maturity. That is what faith looks like, genuine saving faith. And so back to the book of James, it is brought to mature perfection by his works, verse 23, and the scripture was then fulfilled. It all came to fruition that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Genuine faith, brothers and sisters, the fruit of faith is that you don't fear God as the judge but you understand God as your father and as your friend. Not because of anything you have done, but because of everything Christ has done. Not because you're just so special and lovable and he just couldn't pass up the chance to rescue you. You're not a puppy. And he isn't just some emotional good, good father. No, he is father, king, And he sent his son on a mission to die specifically for those who before the foundation of the world, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit entered into eternal binding covenant to save. As a consequence of that, offered them the opportunity to turn to him in ever wonder, love, and praise over the redemption that was offered to them and the ability to receive the faith to believe it. That is what friendship with God looks like. And so he summarizes it in verse 24. You see, that a person is justified in the visible realm by works, just like Abraham was, because they're showing what was already working in you already. It's the apples that naturally come to the apple tree. And not by faith alone, not a fruitless faith. That can't save. And then the fourth illustration, and we'll wrap up this point quickly. The sacrifice for others. Verse 25 to the end. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Remember that beautiful account of Rahab, the foreigner, the pagan, the Gentile, the idol worshiper, the temple prostitute, the one who wasn't just engaged in in, in immorality, but engaged in immorality from the standpoint of part of the worship of a false god. And she is the one who demonstrates the kind of faith that only God can give to a person when he regenerates them. And that faith is made visible 
so that when the messengers are received by her, she says, I understand and believe in Yahweh, and I am a follower of Yahweh. And her actions were an indication that she had turned from being part of the enemy forces and had defected to the other side. And she was now a soldier for those who were there on a campaign on behalf of the name of Yahweh. And so she does what every good soldier would do, and she fights for her side. And yes, she lies, and yes, she deceives, as anyone would in war. And what she does is she offers the protection to these men. She saves these men. She rescues these men. She brings God's deliverance to these men. She is God's agent of deliverance. God created male and female together to represent His image. One of them doesn't represent His image alone. God made woman in the image of God, not in the image of man. And one of the things she does is that she is an Azer Kenegdo, poorly translated helper most often, which diminishes her so often in the eyes of people, especially in the church. It's a word that means deliverer. Rahab was a deliverer, just like many other of the great women in the Bible. We looked at one, I think, last week, that wise woman who saves the entire city of Abel by throwing Sheba's head over the wall. Women are described as personified, or wisdom, I should say, is personified as a woman in the Bible. Women like Abigail, able to defy their foolish husbands to rescue their entire households. Rahab is a deliverer, and everything that happens as a result of her, or, or causing her deliverance is because of the change that is in her, the faith that is in her, the salvation that was brought to her. And so this woman, ever remembered in the Scriptures as the one who rescued these messengers from God, she is a true life giver. She risks everything delivers these men from certain death. You see, she is not like the person described at the beginning of this section who says, go in peace, be warm and filled. She doesn't just say, I totally believe that you guys are from Yahweh. We have seen what Yahweh has been doing in the neighborhood, and it's really scaring us. So I'm completely on board with you guys. I think it's great that you're here. I can't wait for the city to fall. Frankly, I've never agreed with these people. I've always been with you. So, this is great. I'm completely behind you. I'll sign the petition. Um, but you need to go now because I'm going to get in big trouble if they catch me with you. Go in peace. Yahweh will protect you. I mean, Yahweh's been wiping out gener- you know, nations, so I'm sure you'll be fine. You go. You have my blessing. Here's a snack. Here's a map on the way out. You go. Be warm. Be- no! She's the opposite. No, no, you come in. You don't go, you come in. You come into my home. You come under my protection. You see, sacrifice is the opposite of selfishness, and that the fruit then of faith in terms of the sacrifice is seen in the way that she becomes a deliverer for others. She puts them under her care. It's not just personal holiness but it is a true deliverer, rescuer of these men to demonstrate what she believes. What good would it be if she just said, I also believe, and then turned them in? 
And so the author summarizes this illustration as well with these words in verse 26. For as the body, the outward visible aspect of a person, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Just like you know that a body without a spirit is just a dead body. Likewise, a faith without visible works is a dead faith that doesn't save. Faith is fruitful. Dead faith produces selfishness and a fear of God and His judgment. Living faith produces friendship with God and a sacrifice that you're willing to make for His glory to bless others. May this be true of each and every one of us by the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this encouraging portion of Scripture, for the privilege of studying it. We thank you for the challenge that it brings to our hearts. It's not easy for us to consider what you are calling us to here, and yet we ask that for those of us that are genuinely redeemed and reborn, that by your Spirit you will give us the grace to obey, and that we will in gratitude and humility seek to glorify you through our lives of holiness. Lord, as we lift up our voices and praise to you in song now, I just ask that it would come from hearts that are truly overflowing with gratitude for what you chose to do in us and what you are doing in your church assembled here. And may we sing in such a way that we admonish and encourage one another with these hymn songs and spiritual songs to bear even more fruit for your glory and for the good of those that we serve. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people say.